How do you tell the difference between a child of God and a child of the devil? Is there a tried and true test by which one may determine whether or not a, another person or persons may be a child of the king, a child of God, or a child of the devil? As we continue our study tonight in 1 John, we see that John provides us with that acid test, with the scriptural test, as we begin at verse 10 of 1 John 3, where John writes, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest, or made known, revealed. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. And so there are two criteria here in this one verse. The first of these two takes us back to what John has just written in our last study together. The second looks forward to the section that we will study tonight. The first criterion is, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Here's the first one. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. If you want to know who is a child of the devil and therefore not a child of God, and incidentally, there's no middle ground. John doesn't discuss someone who is neutral here because there is no such individual. As far as the scriptures are concerned, either one is a child of God or a child of, of the devil. I know that that in today's world sounds rather harsh to a great many people, doesn't it? Because there are a great many people who no doubt contend, well, I may not be a child of God, I may not be doing right, but I'm certainly not characterized as a child of the devil. But you see, John says you have to be in one kingdom or the other. There are no other kingdoms, and there are no other options. Now, we can be thankful for, and we are thankful for those who, even though they're not children of God, that is, they're not in the kingdom of God, they haven't obeyed the gospel of Christ, and they're not following God according to his New Testament, they're not out murdering and killing and doing all these evil things that a lot of evil people are doing, granted. In other words, we're thankful for good moral people. But even good moral people, unless they have complied with the will of God and have become children of God, are still in that other kingdom. And that's what the scripture abundantly makes clear. And that's what we must therefore preach and teach. And so, John says here, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. As we said, that particular criterion takes us back to the verses we studied last time. Remember in verse 4 of John, 1 John 3, when we began last time, John wrote, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. And then verse 7 Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. You see the thought that ties in with what John is coming back to here in verse 10. Then he goes on in verse 8, we studied last time, he who sins is of the devil. Now remember what we said about 
sin as it's discussed in this context of 1 John 3, 4 through 9, when he says he who sins is of the devil, he's not saying he who ever commits a sin is of the devil. Children of God commit sin, don't they? Because we're not perfect. So what John is saying is he who keeps on sinning, he who keeps on living in sin cannot be of God. You can't live a life of sin and still claim to be of God. That doesn't mean that children of God don't sin. They do. But their lives are not characterized by sin. That's what John is emphasized in the section we studied last time. In fact, in verse 9, the last verse we studied last time, John wrote, whoever has been born of God does not sin. Well, you know he has to be talking about what? He has to be talking about the practice of sin. Whoever is born of God does not sin, has to mean does not keep on sinning, because everybody who's born of God sins. Everybody who is born of God, everyone who's been begotten of God, everyone who obeys the gospel of Christ, everyone who is walking in the light as God is in the light, does what? Sins. But not continually, not habitually, and not because he or she wants to live in a life of sin. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us from our sins. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's the description of the child of God who does sin despite his or her best efforts. So John, in the passage we looked at last time, 1 John 3, 4 through 9, is saying, he who keeps on sinning is not of God. Whoever's been born of God does not keep on sinning. Why not, John? For his seed, the word, remains in him, and he cannot sin, meaning he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been begotten or born of God. Now we're back to verse 10 where he says, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. And when he says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, that takes us back to these verses we studied last week. You've got to practice righteousness in order to be considered of God, to be following God. It's not what you say that counts, it's what you do that counts. And anyone who claims to be of God must practice righteousness. Now, keep in mind, as we have often said throughout this series of lessons, that John was writing at a time when the Gnostic heresy was rampant, when there were these Gnostics who claimed superior knowledge and who believed that because they had been sanctified and because the body did not affect what the spirit uh, the uh, destination of the spirit, or did not soil the spirit, so to speak. They could do with their bodies whatever they wanted to, and it wouldn't affect their spirits, their eternal salvation at all. Well, John refutes that very clearly. But as we have also often said, there's a modern-day doctrine that is very prevalent in the religious world that John, by, confuting, by, re, uh, by confronting the Gnostic heresy, also confronts today, doesn't he? What is it? The impossibility of apostasy. There are those who contend that once you've been sanctified, no matter what you do after that, you can't lose your salvation no matter what. John addresses that very error when he says you've got to keep on practicing righteousness. 
And if you don't, you are no longer of God. You cannot claim to be of God because one of the criteria is, one criterion is, if you don't practice righteousness, you're not of God. Now that takes us back to those verses we just reviewed. The second criterion, though, in verse 10 is this, nor is he who does not love his brother. And I don't know of any way to overstate the importance of what John addresses right here and how absolutely critical it is that every single one of us here tonight who is a child of God understands the importance of this criterion in terms of how your love for your brothers and your sisters gives evidence of the fact that you have been born or begotten of God and that you are a child of God. And that by way of contrast, when you do not manifest that love, you prove that you are not of God, that you're not of God. The late guy in Wood said something to this effect about this matter. He said, if you do not manifest love for your brethren, you really are no longer of God. You're no longer in the family because you're no longer really a faithful brother. That's how absolutely crucial it is that we understand the importance of loving our brethren and that we not only understand it, but that we practice it to the fullest extent of our being. One of the criteria, the second listed in this verse, nor is he who does not love his brother. Now that moves us forward. That moves us forward because the last criterion there, he's now going to elaborate upon in these verses that follow verse 10. In verse 11, for, in other words, he's getting back now to the love for the brethren. Here's why it's so important, John says, because this is the message you heard from the beginning. From the very beginning of your Christian existence, this is what you have heard that you should love one another. What did Jesus say in John 13, 34 and 35, a passage at which we have looked before? By this, what? He says, a new commandment I give you, verse 13, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And the newness of that commandment was not love itself. The newness of that commandment was the extent of that love. To the extent that I have loved you. John will discuss that right here in just a moment as we get to it. But to the extent that I have loved you, Jesus said, I want you to love one another. That's the goal for which you are shooting, so to speak, is the degree of love that I have had and manifested for you. That's the highest degree one can possibly imagine. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And in verse 35 of John 13, he says, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Now just turn that around for a moment. John will turn it around for us in a moment. But turn it around in a moment. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. If you do not have love one for another, then by this all will know that you are what? Not my disciples. In other words, love give, gives evidence of discipleship. 
Now John is not saying, nor did Jesus say, that love is a condition of your, of your salvation initially. No, that's belief, repentance, confession, and baptism. Now, obviously, we should comply with those commands out of love, hopefully, primarily because of the love that's been shown to us, 1 John 4, 19. We love him because he first loved us. But love is not a condition of one's becoming a Christian in the sense that it's not among those conditions of salvation. It comes after you have become a Christian, and by that love, you demonstrate that you are a Christian because people can see the love that you have for all those who have done the same thing you did in becoming a Christian. And you show that love. And this is the message, John says, that you have heard from the very beginning of your Christian existence, that we should love one another. And then he draws a contrast for us in verse 12. When he contrasts hatred with that love, because he uses Cain as an illustration of the hatred. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? And John quickly answers, because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. And so here, John uses the illustration of Cain, takes us back to Genesis chapter 4. And the first instance of recorded worship, as we have talked about it in other contexts, is one that is vitally important because it lays a foundation for us about worship that we must never forget. What is that foundational principle that is laid for us in Genesis 4? That we should offer animal sacrifices to God as those were commanded to? No, that we should worship God as God has directed us to worship. That's the principle that is established the first time we read of worship in Scripture. Because Cain's sacrifice was rejected and Abel's was accepted. But upon what basis was Cain's rejected and Abel's accepted? Based upon what the men offered. We've talked about this before, but quickly to refresh our minds about it. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4, Abel is mentioned among the great heroes of the faith, as they are often called in that chapter. And Hebrews 11.4 says of Abel, By faith, by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. Now, he offered by faith. By faith is a phrase that you see repeated often in that chapter. By faith, Enoch was taken away. By faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not seen, moved with godly fear. By faith, Abraham. By faith, etc. By faith, followed by verbs of action. So by faith, Abel offered to God a what? A more excellent sacrifice than Cain. How does faith come? Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if Abel offered by faith and faith comes by hearing the word of God, what do we conclude? Abel offered based upon what God told him to offer. By faith, Abel offered, faith comes by hearing the word of God, 
Since Abel offered by faith, he offered by the word of God. God told those men what to offer. And that is reinforced by the very phrasing of the passage in Hebrews 11.4. Notice it again. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his what? God testifying of his attitude? No, God testifying of his gifts. His gifts, the gifts themselves, the sacrifice. God testified concerning the kind of gift that he offered. What did he offer? The lamb of the first, the firstlings of his flock, with the fat thereof, which I believe to be highly significant because we don't read anything about the fat on those animal sacrifices belonging to God until we come to the book of Leviticus. And there it is specifically mentioned that God wanted the fat to be offered. But Abel offered the sacrifice of the lamb with the fat. In other words, he did something that God obviously told him to do and that God later codified in the law of Moses, thus adding further evidence to the fact that God told these men what to offer. Abel did it, Cain substituted and offered the fruit of the ground, and therefore Cain's sacrifice was rejected, and he was envious, he was jealous, his heart was filled with hatred, and that hatred ultimately led him to perhaps slit the throat of his brother. Because the word here for murdered in 1 John 3.12 literally if it's to be taken literally, means to butcher, to slit the throat of one's victim. And if John intended it to be literal, if the Holy Spirit inspired John to write exactly the manner in which Cain did it, then he slit his brother's throat. But whatever he did, he killed him, didn't he? And why? Why did he murder him? Listen to the way John puts it. Because his works were evil. Does John say because his attitude was wrong? No. He says because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. His brothers what? His brothers works. Do we not have here a comparison or rather a contrast of not attitudes but works? In other words, what these men did? What does that say about the efficacy of works in God's plan for saving man? Does it not say that there is a certain kind of work that God absolutely demands of us if we're to be pleasing to him? Absolutely. These men offered their sacrifices long before the law of Moses ever came into effect. Those works of the law of Moses could not absolutely take away sin. They were to lead to a better covenant and better works of righteousness by faith that would be ushered in with the new covenant. But works have always been a part of God's dealings with man. And you see it right here. God testifying of Abel's what? Hebrews 11.4. Gifts. Calls them gifts in Hebrews 11.4. Calls them what here? Works. Calls them works here. What's the difference between the works and the gifts? Nothing. When they offered the gifts... They were working. Working to try to earn salvation? No. Working in response to what God had told them to do. 
One man worked righteousness, the other one worked unrighteousness and substituted. And oh, how important that is in terms of what it says about what God expected then and what he expects and demands now in terms of the worship that he has set forth now through his son in the New Testament. The five specific acts of worship in which we are to engage as Christians tonight. And so the contrast that John draws, not as Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. And it introduces something that John next addresses about the hostility that has always existed and always will exist between evil and good between unrighteousness and righteousness, between those who are doing good and those who are not doing good and those who are not doing good are not happy with those who are because you are a living rebuke to those who are not living as they should. And so John writes in verse 13, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Notice how John addresses them here. He's talking about in this context, is he not love for your brothers, love for your brethren. And so here he doesn't call them little children as he so often does elsewhere in the epistle or beloved or terms of that nature. But here in the only time in the epistle, he uses the word brethren. Logically so because he's discussing brotherhood and how much love we are to have for those who are our brethren. He simply reminds them, you are brethren. Don't marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. Don't marvel at that. Well, remember what Jesus had to say about it in the gospel, according to John, as he recorded the words of Jesus back in John chapter 15, verses 17. Through 19. Jesus told his apostles there, in effect, not to, not to marvel at this. He says, the things I command you that you love one another, these things I command you that you love one another. And then he says to them, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And then he says to them, if you were of the world, the world will love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Why should we expect the world to commend us for living the kind of life that is an open, constant rebuke to their lifestyle? Why would we expect them to have a warm, fuzzy feeling for us if indeed our lives are a living rebuke to their lives? And so John says, don't marvel. As Jesus told his disciples in the passage we just noticed, not to, not to marvel in effect. Don't marvel. You can mourn over that to some extent. You can regret the fact that the world doesn't appreciate you. You can mourn over it to some extent, but don't marvel at it. Don't be shocked about it. And by all means, don't move toward the world in order to keep the world from hating you. That's the greatest temptation that we face, really, isn't it? 
that when we face the hostility of the world, in order to avoid that hostility, the temptation is to move, to move more toward those who hate us in order to keep them from hating us. And that's exactly what is happening in many places in the Lord's church today. As there are those who do not want the religious world at large to view them as being some sort of cultic extremists and therefore the compromise begins to occur so that we can all be friendlier, kinder, and gentler and get along. And there are those who have succumbed to that temptation. Many without even realizing that that's what they have done and the process at many times is so slow that the departure is undetectable by those who are involved in it themselves until one day they wake up or actually don't wake up because they've already moved so far they don't even see the need to wake up anymore. Don't marvel if the world hates you. Don't marvel if the denominational world hates you because you are a New Testament Christian. Mourn over it, yes, but don't move to be more like those who have tragically not conformed to the will of God. But live in such a way to bring those back who have compromised and who have moved and have become more like the world around them. John in the next verse writes, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Isn't that an amazing statement? We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. You know what that says? That says check yourself. To me that says check yourself. Check your love for your brothers and sisters. And be honest with yourself about your love for your brothers and sisters. And does your deep love for your brothers and sisters and the way you act toward them in demonstrating that love, does that truly give evidence to everyone around you, including your own brothers and sisters, that you have passed from death to life? Or do our actions ever cause our brothers or sisters to wonder whether or not we're loved by them? as we should be, or do our actions toward them make them wonder about us? You know, I see my responsibility as twofold in this regard, and that is to love my brothers and sisters to the fullest extent of my being, and to the fullest extent of my being, to be as lovable as I can possibly be to them, for them to love me, to make it as easy for them to love me as I possibly can. Don't make it hard for your brothers and sisters to love you. Make it the easiest thing that they could possibly do because you, you are so lovable. 
This is an important subject. It is an absolutely crucial subject. We know we've passed from death. That is, the death that comes from sin and separation from God. We've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. There's the way we can test ourselves. That's the way we can check ourselves. Now, is John saying that love is the only criterion that we should have to know that we pass from death to life? Of course not. But love is the basis, isn't it? Upon which rest all those other beautiful virtues of the Christian life. If love is where it should be, everything else should fall into place. Because love will manifest itself by actions that demonstrate the depth of our love for one another. Now notice something very important here. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Hold that thought. He who does not love his brother abides in death. He who does not love his brother abides in death. He's not of God if he does not love his brother. Now notice the next statement. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. So what do we have? Whoever does not love his brother abides in death. Verse 14. Now whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Is John not equating the two? Is John not saying that if you fail to love your brother, you hate your brother? Now someone may say, well, wait a minute. I may not love my brother, but I sure don't hate him. John won't let you get away with that, so to speak. John says an absence of love basically is equivalent to hatred. In other words, you've got to positively manifest your love for your brothers and your sisters. That love has to be demonstrated. He's basically equating not loving your brother with hating your brother. He is not giving us middle neutral ground here. And he says, the one who hates is a murderer. Does that mean that you would actually contemplate killing someone else? Well, or that you would carry through with it? No, not necessarily. But the key is the attitude. The key is the attitude towards your brother. And it really takes us back, this thought does, to the Sermon on the Mount. In what Jesus had to say as a part of that sermon in Matthew chapter 7. You remember what he said that, or Matthew chapter 5 rather. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother Rekha shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell fire. In other words, Jesus gets behind the action itself to the attitude. And John gets behind the action itself to the attitude and says you must be involved in actively loving your brother. 
in order to avoid being characterized as one who hates him. This is a very sobering text, and I'm sure you realize that, a very sobering text. And he sobers our thinking further when he adds these words to verse 15, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Therefore, the one who does not love his brother does not have eternal life abiding in him. That is what John, by inspiration, is telling us. And then the final verse we'll look at tonight, verse 16, he says, By this we know love. Here's your demonstration. Here's the perfect demonstration of love that all of us are to follow as we seek to love our brothers and sisters. By this we know love because he... Christ laid down his life for us. Laid down his life for us in our stead, in our behalf. Substitutionary thought here in that word for. And the idea of laying down his life for us is the idea of one who sees one who is in battle, who is wounded, who has fallen, and he goes to his side and he takes up the battle on his behalf to protect the one who has been wounded. That's what Jesus did. He took our place in the battle against sin and made it possible for us to win the ultimate victory over it by the sacrifice that, his, that he was willing to make. And John says what? And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. When the church at White Oak or any other place as a whole to every individual down to every member of the Lord's church understands, appreciates, and applies what John has written here and what he writes elsewhere in this great epistle of love as well as the epistle of certainties as it's been called. When we understand and apply it Oh, what a foretaste of heaven the church of our Lord here on earth is, truly. And when we fail to apply it, and when we do not understand and apply the importance of loving our brethren and manifesting that love with our words, with our actions, with our deeds, then indeed we have something at times far short of the foretaste of heaven. And so let us determine that we will always set as the ultimate standard for our love for each other the love that Christ has manifested for us. And remember that Jesus himself said, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. John 15, 13. That's the kind of love we're to have for one another. What about your love tonight? What about your love for God? Remember one of the criteria? One criterion there that was given of the two criteria in the first verse we studied tonight? He who practices righteousness. He who practices righteousness. And if you're not practicing righteousness, then indeed you cannot be of God. And the practice of righteousness has to begin with becoming righteous through obedience to the gospel by a belief that leads you to repent of your sins, confess Jesus to be the Christ, 
and then to be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. To rise to walk in newness of life, righteousness of life, as one who truly understands the importance of practicing righteousness and who demonstrates and manifests love for his brethren as the badge that he wears, so to speak, of discipleship by which all know that you have become a child of God. If as a child of God you need to come home tonight because you know you haven't practiced righteousness, we plead with you to do that now as we stand to sing to encourage you.